Section 1 of The Art of Music, Volume 1 The Pre-Classic Periods Editor-in-Chief, Daniel Gregory Mason This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Jake Militia A Narrative History of Music Introduction Musical art is the idealised art of the inner man as distinguished from the arts of painting and sculpture and their like which are the idealized expression of what is outside him it is the result of the urgent impulses of certain peculiarly constituted human beings to express things which move them in ways which are favorable to permanence which permanence proves attainable only through the controlling influence of the instinct for order the instinct for order and the impulse to gratify it in all directions seem to be present in all unperverted human beings, which is obviously the consequence of the fact that it has always ministered to the preservation of those who possessed it, the primitive savage, who kept his weapons in some kind of orderly fashion, and knew where to lay his hands on them when wanted, easily survived the disorderly savage who could not find them soon enough to prevent being exterminated. The primitive savage, who could dispose his means of existence in an orderly fashion, was more likely to survive the savage who had no proper place for anything, and there were thousands of other ways in which this instinct favoured its possessor, and favoured him more and more as social and antisocial conditions progressed in complexity. Looked at from another point of view, that of experience, the lack of the sense of order betokens low mental power and the possession of it in higher and higher degrees is a token of higher and higher capacities of mind. The sense of order is the basis of organization, and out of organization comes permanence. The more perfect the organization, the more lasting is the thing organized. What is well built is well organized for its purpose, and stands fast. What is ill built is badly organized for its purpose and tumbles down. And so it is with a work of literature. It cannot be said that a noble thought ill-presented will soon be forgotten, but its being ill-presented makes it obscure. It must be admitted that fascination is added to the utterance of a great thought by the perfect clearness and nicety with which it is expressed. The presentation is in that sense admirably organized, and the mind welcomes it, and returns to it frequently with delight whereas if it is clumsily expressed, it gives the mind unnecessary trouble to understand what it means, and then there is a feeling of distaste and annoyance which prejudices the welcome that the great thought merits. So it is with the work of art. Clumsiness and incoherence of structure beget discomfort, however great the intentions. Imperfections, which may not be noticed at first, grow more and more oppressive, till they become unbearable and at last mankind is impelled to regard the good intentions as little better than opportunities wasted. It may be justly argued that such imperfections are inevitable not only because art represents human efforts, but because organization takes centuries to effect. It is also true that certain types of imperfection are pathetically attractive, and afford a kind of interest in themselves where they suggest the kind of human condition and effort which is characteristic of the time and circumstances in which any individual work of art was produced. But in such case it is necessary that the motive shall be honourable. 
after ages will never be able to regard the deficiencies in modern church and chapel architecture stained glass windows modern tombstones and suburban villa residences with anything but disgust putting such aberrations aside for the present it is pleasant to realize that one of the privileges of an instinct for style is to be able to recognize the stage of organization which has been reached both in diction and structure by the qualities of any work of art and to locate the type of organization and balance its proportionate relation to what is expressed and more subtly still to discern even the intention men who have any artistic instinct estimate the quality of a work of art by such an adjustment they feel its nobility if it has any even though the standard of organization is low by estimating the quality of the thought in connection with the inevitable limitations of the means of expression a work of art may inspire constant delight even though its form be obvious and its details crude if the methods employed are sincere efforts to express with the best means available an inspiring idea limitations do not necessarily imply false construction there is this to be remembered that the progress of thought and the progress of organization proceed together and that a thought which clearly belongs to several generations ago will not be as complex or have to cover so much ground as the thought of later times of equal status and that the limitation of the means of organization of the time to which the thought belongs will therefore be adequate and congenial to that thought whereas if a composer or artist use only the resources of diction and design of two hundred years ago to express a modern thought the deficiency of the organization becomes at once apparent it is worth while to observe parenthetically that in primitive stages of art men did not attempt organization in order to give permanence to their artistic products their attitude was that of the unconscious child and they merely sought to gratify their instinct for order and arrived at the principle of organization in the process so the beginnings of art were the direct result of the inevitable processes of the universe men found out the relation of organization to permanence long afterward when they developed the capacity to analyze and consider what they were doing mankind like the individual passes through three stages in his manner of producing and doing things the first is unconscious and spontaneous the second is self-critical analytical and self-conscious and the third is the synthesis which comes of the recovery of spontaneity with all the advantages of the absorption of right principles of action in the products of the first stage people delight in spite of crudity and clumsiness because they are fervent genuine essentially human the products of the second are often ineffectual occasionally suggestive and for the most part more historically than humanly interesting it is in the last phase that the greatest works of musical art are produced and it is in such works of art that the approximation to perfection may be found in which there is no part which has not some relation to every other part nothing which does not minister to the fullness with which the inner idea of the artist is expressed in which every curve of the melody every progression of harmony every modulation every rhythmic group every climax and relaxation of stress every shade of colour and every part of the inner texture at once ministers to coherent and cogent expression 
and at the same time fulfills its function in the general scheme of design or organisation. From mere elementary orderliness, art has progressed in such things to the very highest manifestations of the subtlest and most perfect organisation which the human mind is capable of achieving. But it must be admitted that such an ideal is only reached in very rare cases, by masters whose complete absorption in the work of artistic creation is undisturbed by distracting influences, who can maintain their concentration through a prolonged and coherent effort, and who have the gift to apply their faculties, and successfully call upon their minds to provide exactly the right methods and procedures whenever required, and at the same time to hold everything balanced by the requirements of proportionate relation, which is indispensable to true artistic organisation. It is to such perfection that all true artists aspire, and it is only those who are absolutely true to themselves who can even approximate to it. In days when commercialism is rampant, and the favour of such as are totally ignorant of the most elementary artistic principles is held to be the criterion of artistic worth, it practically becomes impossible. There are two phases of organisation. The first is the organisation of terms, signs, methods, materials, some of which must be found before art begins, but most of which are found as it evolves. The second phase is the organisation of the individual works of art. The parallel that springs to mind at the moment is the organisation of units and supplies of an army, on the one hand and on the other the organisation of the campaign and the engagements for which the forces and their needs were organised. Upon the former kind of organisation, it is not necessary to dwell. It is an obvious necessity of art. But, though part of it, it does not illustrate or affect the quality of the art products except in a purely elementary and mechanical sense. Of the latter kind, which manifests itself inevitably in varying degrees in every musical work, from the cheapest popular song to the highest instrumental symphony, it must be admitted that it is worth while to have some little understanding especially of the relations to one another, of the various branches and factors in the artistic scheme which the study of such things in detail is apt to miss. At the outset, the curious anomaly may be admitted that expression and organisation appear to be antagonistic. This is only one way of recognising that art, like everything else, is achieved by the accommodation of opposites. The very idea of human feeling being expressed in preconceived set terms sounds so preposterous as to be almost repugnant. Yet, if it is not expressed in set terms, how should it maintain its hold upon the mind? We know by experience that human feeling upsets organisation, as, for instance, in the confusion of rhythm into which highly emotional performers and singers are driven, and that organisation stifles human feeling as, for instance, in the empty, inadequate words that are stuffed into poetry to make rhymes, and the ridiculous shams that are stuffed in architecture as in music to make a pattern complete. But, as a matter of fact, though language also might be described as antagonistic to feeling, yet feeling cannot definitely be conveyed to other beings without being formalised into words, and the words arranged according to the recognised rules of prosody. And, as a matter of experience, when language has become, as it does, a spontaneous means of expressing feeling, it very often intensifies the feelings that it is used to express. Many men are more excited by their own violent language than by the motives which cause them to give vent to it, 
So in art, some men only begin to find out how strong their feelings are when they try to put them into shape. The mere fact of organising effective climaxes, according to settled principles, causes them to believe in deep-set passion, which they would not otherwise have suspected in themselves. Oratory is never in itself a proof of greatness, or even sincerity of soul. So it cannot be maintained that the appearance of antagonism is fully borne out by experience. But what is evident is that the human element represents instability, and the constructive element stability, and the adjustment of the two keeps art alive. All art that has life in it must be in unstable equilibrium, for indeed all thought whatever induces instability. Stable equilibrium, if such a thing could be conceivable, is merely abeyance of activity. As a matter of fact, there is no part of the universe which is in stable equilibrium, art as little as the rest of it. Art is, in the wildest sense, man's highest expression of the spirit of the universe, that is, of the effects which are produced in his inner man by his personal experiences in it, and his cogitations about it, and art's life is governed by the same laws. In the universe all things seem to tend towards stable equilibrium, and yet of necessity, when it seems to be approached, some new direction of force disturbs it, and sets up new systems of motions which may last for ages. So in art there has been a tendency to deal with the claims of feeling, and the claims of form at different times. At certain periods in art's history, the human element predominated, and the claims of organisation were either ignored or overlooked. The result was incoherence, and the need of more circumspect procedure gave organisation an excessive spell of attention. Convention then took the place of realities, and art became the playground of ingenious dry-as-dusts, till the human element again asserted its claims, and progress swayed in the direction of instability again, and so the great rhythm was maintained. But it would be absurd to pretend that the alternation proceeded regularly, without yielding to external influences. The direction which art took was often influenced by social conditions external to itself. A chance whiff of fashion, or a wave of impulse in favour of intellectual subtleties, would naturally cause a phase of art in which human feeling would be crowded out by superfluity of organising ingenuity. A state of society in which a few people enjoyed the results of their ancestors having annexed all the material advantages of the world, and regarded the rest of humanity as merely provided by providence to minister to their vanities, would be peculiarly favourable to the exuberance of conventional pattern-making and elegant futilities, while the successful overthrow of such poisonous tradition, and the general acceptance of the widest claims of humanity to common justice naturally brought an overwhelming impulse of human feeling into play. But the apparent derangement of the ebb and flow was not actually destructive of the principle, but only affected the length of the periods and the extent of the one influence on the other. As a rule, the instinctive discernment of humanity was so far just that it is far more easy to point to periods when human feeling predominated than to those when the organising instinct predominated. This was natural, because all artistic beings are, as far as the impulse is concerned, at the outset bent upon expressing feelings of some sort. Even those who have more aptitude for technical efficiency than mind are not actually aiming at producing supernaturally correct grammatical exercises. They are always much offended if such a thing is suggested. 
The unsophisticated lovers of music, who have no technical knowledge to speak of, are always concerned with the human side of it. They are moved by the sound, the colour, the rhythm, the character of the melody, and, as far as they can get at it, by the idea the composer wants to express. It lies with the unsophisticated to maintain the claims of that side of art, as Wagner suggested when he said that he made his works for the not-musicians. The fully instructed are inevitably inclined to overestimate mere workmanship. The wonder that is inspired by supremely masterly organisation impels experts to be carried away by their admiration of it. And, moreover, it is practicable to discuss that aspect of art fully and clearly, whereas language is not apt to discuss the meaning and spirit of musical art, for the obvious reason that it is the business of music to express things that are beyond the reach of words. And it is pathetic to think how many thousands of people who have musical insight and are really moved and inspired by it are, through their very conscientious desire to understand it, misled into supposing that organisation and dexterous use of the methods of art are the things that are of highest importance. This has been the bane of the greater part of theoretic writing about art, and is the thing which arouses rebellion in ardent and aspiring minds against the stress that is laid on principles of form and grammatical orthodoxies. To such dispositions it seems preposterous to devote so much attention to the organisation and to take so little count of the thing organised, and their antagonism is indeed very serviceable. For however ridiculous the results their ardour often produces, they do help to keep art alive and to prevent its being stifled by conventions. And they do maintain the necessary protest against the paralysing theory that has at times been propounded that art is merely a special manifestation of clever mechanical ingenuity. Coherent organisation is indeed a necessary condition of art, but the thing organised is of the foremost importance. The idea comes first and the organisation is secondary. Yet the one is futile without the other. The idea cannot be conveyed without the organisation, but the organisation without something to organise is mere superfluity. The idea without organisation is mere incoherence. Mere organisation without meaning is empty puzzle-making. Neither by itself has any claim to be distinguished as art. The ways in which a work of art can be organised are practically innumerable but in musical art they all have the simple structural basis of a departure from a given point to a point or many points of contrast and back home again. The infinite number of varieties depends on the manner in which the central point is established, and how the departure from it is made, how the contrasting middle portion is organised, and how the return home is established. The evolution of principles of form consists in the elaboration of the main divisions into subordinate contrasts, Contrasts to contrasts, inner organic procedures, devices of structure which are linked and superimposed on one another, in which the steps that lead away from the main centre are successively distributed in subtle gradations, all of which are available to make the adaptation to the idea more perfect. The story of the evolution is perspicuously clear. As the vast amount of devoted and latterly intelligent labour which has been expended upon collecting folk songs and specimens of quasi-musical phrases of savages, has completed the story from the first appearance of the desire for some kind of orderliness up to the portentous elaborations of European music of the present day. The way complication has been built upon complication 
may be easily grasped by observing the successive stages of art for which organization had to be provided at first it had only to serve for a single melodic line then in the period of ecclesiastical choral music for two or more combined melodic lines then composers combined more and more melodic lines as they found out how it could be done and this caused their minds to be almost monopolized by what may be called linear organization which is a systematized relation of melodic parts which are quasi-independent but knit into unity by their subjection to the rules of melodic scales which were called modes the highest outcome of long and concentrated thought in this direction was the type of organization known as the fugue which is a linear principle of organization vitalized by the systematic distribution of recognizable melodic phrases fugue was the first form in which the musical idea was the most prominent factor in organization and in the hands of genuine composers was developed to a high degree of perfection but it left almost unrealized the problem of organization which dawned upon the men's minds as necessary when they began to feel the harmonies which were the result of combined melodious parts as entities in themselves this problem was dealt with in the period when men devoted themselves to the classification of harmonies in key systems which gave every harmony a definite function in artistic organization and the capacity of the human mind was developed till it could recognize one succession of harmonies as representing one key center and another succession of harmonies as representing another key center and this made an orderly succession of key centers the new basis of organization then the human mind grew to be able to discern these principles of order when composers dispensed with the sounding of the concrete harmonies and only represented them by ornamental procedures through which the trained mind can perceive and infer the groups of harmonic successions which are implied and recognize the respective keys to which they belong complication yet further expanded the basis of organization as composers approached what may be called the extreme of sophistication which became attainable by a reversion to the linear system in which harmony was again suffused by polyphonic methods and the individual notes of the ornamental formulas themselves are made to represent centres of activity and have their own harmonization which harmonization subsists in spite of its apparent clashing with the harmonization of other ornamental notes which the mind is able to endure because it intellectually segregates the notes which represent different systems and allots them to their respective centres and so keeps them apart from one another the superimposition of device upon device is like a perpetual budding from a germ cell with the additional analogy to things physical that each generation is always consistent in its characteristic and identifiable the quickness of the human mind at grasping the especial type of organization which it has to accept in order to follow the idea of the composer is one of the most extraordinary capacities as is the development of the art which enables the adequately equipped composer to be sure that his most subtle sophistications are sure to meet with understanding from the auditors who are equally well equipped when an ignoramus looks at a full score of any big modern work and sees there the hundreds of notes that are to be sounded in a few seconds and sounded also for the fraction of a second and no more most of which are not harmony notes but only suggest them by the way they are grouped and yet convey to the qualified auditor a perfect sense of orderliness and coherence it will either give him the sense of the amazing development of art and of human capacity to follow what is offered to it as art or incredulity 
in accordance with his temperamental bias. But it has to be remembered that in order to find any method of organization serviceable, the auditor must have gone through some of the steps which enable him to follow the procedure. It is here that certain perplexing incapacities will find their explanation. It frequently happens that a person of considerable musical culture is amazed to find that some passage which he regards as one of the noblest and most moving in the whole range of art leaves the majority of average audiences entirely blank and unmoved, and this may happen with people who are constantly hearing music. It happens most frequently when a person who cultivates late phases of instrumental music is brought into contact with the finest choral music of the 16th century. The meaning and purpose of the several motions have not come under his attention, and he has no clue whatever to the scheme of organisation. The contempt with which the complacent classicist of the sonata period looked down upon the form of the fugue was owing to musicians having broken altogether for the time with organisation of the fugal type, and having become incapable of listening to and understanding the motions of two or three independent parts at once. For here it will be as well to observe that every step in the building up of art by the addition of notes to a scale, of new chords which were devised, and of methods and devices of all sorts, had special functions when they were invented, just as much as every conceivable feature in architecture had a function. But mankind always forgot the original meaning very soon, and applied the various features to other purposes, most of which were quite without meaning, and merely served for barren show. It is this forgetfulness which makes so many people totally indifferent to the finest artistic achievements. They are expressed in a language they do not understand. It must be obvious that there is a very close connection between the type and complexity of organisation, and the standard of mental development of those for whom it is devised. The study of folk music and the music of primitive savages is very enlightening in this respect, especially in respect of the organisation, which is based in great part on musical phrases. As might be naturally supposed, the earliest sign of awakening intelligence is found in mere reiteration of some melodic or rhythmic formula. This is essentially the primitive savage type, and is met with in extraordinary persistency under varied conditions. It is a most remarkable fact that such undisguised reiteration is a conspicuous feature of the music of relatively undeveloped races in the present day, who have adopted the advanced methods of modern music with remarkable success. It is the more curious as the composers of the more developed races do not resort to such naive reiteration except as a basis for presenting a phrase or passage in different lights by variation and with the undeveloped races their reversion to a primitive practice, especially at points of great excitement, is an unconscious admission of the nearness of their temperamental average to that of their primitive ancestry. As a principle, mere reiteration is hardly worthy of the name of organisation. It might rather be called a preliminary procedure, or a means of keeping things going. It does not imply any mental development, it only implies some kind of definition and capacity of recognition. The first step toward real organisation comes when a phrase or short passage of melody is alternated with another, and which serves as a contrast with it, and returns again to the first phrase to give the sense of completeness. Yet even such a simple principle of orderliness needed considerable progress in mental grasp before it could be attained. 
it might perhaps be regarded as the significant feature which distinguishes folk music from savage music. Folk music is indeed a very considerable advance on the music of primitive savages, and it shows the growth of power to attain to real orderliness as the basis of art by the employment of simple and clear forms of organisation, which are evolved quite irrespective of any collusion or imitation between the races that resorted to it. As folk music is always melodic, it did not admit of great variety of elaboration in the organisation of the tunes, yet there was sufficient to illustrate the average disposition toward intellectuality of the races which the songs represent. Races which are notable for the quickness of their intelligence and their delight in the exercise of it, show it in the closeness and interest of the structure of their folk music, as is the case with Scotch tunes, and those whom imagination, feeling, or sentiment are specially liable to dominate are represented by forms which are vaguer and less elaborately organised. On the side of character, also, it is parenthetically observable that folk tunes reflect the temperamental qualities of the races and localities to which they belong most truthfully, such as the vivacity and love of orderly design of the French, the pathos and pugnacity of the Irish, the sober simplicity and deliberation of the English, the sentimental reflectiveness of Germans, the spasmodic vehemence of Hungarians, and the love of elaborate ornamentation of the Orientals. Slavonic folk music is also most characteristic, but it is most difficult to define. It has in most cases a flavour of the playful unconsciousness of youth, simplicity of structure, and a kind of pathetic gaiety. This close connection between a race or geographical attitude of mind and its folk music is really a foretaste of the connection which persisted throughout the whole story of art's evolution. A people's music so accurately represents its temperamental qualities that if there was any doubt about a race's character, the music they favour would solve it. In folk music, the element of rhythm figures very considerably, and, as it is a subject about which a great deal of confusion of mind seems to exist, it is advisable to give a little attention to it. It is a defining and vitalising influence of the highest importance, for it is only through rhythm that the individual factors of organisation become identifiable. It is through the grouping of beats into two, three, four, five, six, and so on, that the nuclei which are the basis of organisation are grouped into coherent and distinguishable factors. Inasmuch as a note is nothing by itself, and only becomes something when it has relation to another note, and as these notes must succeed one another in time, it is necessary to have some means of defining the respective lengths of time which are to be relatively allotted to the respective notes. And rhythm is the process by which the progress of sounds in time is marked off and organised. Without it, there would be mere vagueness and confusion. This is the aspect of rhythm from the point of view of organisation. That was not its object in the beginning, but to minister to expression of feeling. All people who have not attained to an advanced stage of culture and intelligence delight in rhythm, and the sphere it occupies in folk music is enlightening, for its preponderance varies considerably. In some folk music it is always conspicuous, as in Hungarian and French folk music. In some it is only moderately apparent and rarely aggressive, except when the words associated with it imply vigorous action, as in English and German folk music. There are obvious implications which are suggested by the fact. The aggressively rhythmic music shows a predisposition for instrumental music, and the less rhythmic for vocal music. 
The former represents the music of action, and the latter the music of inner feeling. The former secular feeling, and the latter serious feeling associated with religion of some sort. Rhythm suggests bodily activity. Its essential function is to represent the expression of feelings by motions of the body, arms, legs, or any part that can move freely. This is verified by the fact that rhythmic music impels people to join in with hands and feet, and this is also the underlying basis of dance music, for the object of dance music is to inspire people to rhythmic activity, and its connection with expression is verified by the fact that so much dance music, even in the earliest times, has been mimetic. The position of rhythm in artistic music is strange, for it is undeniable that the preponderant impulse of serious composers is to hide it away in sophistications. Indeed, for many centuries it was, possibly unconsciously, kept at bay. Pure unsophisticated rhythm belongs to the primitives. It is not the form of expression congenial to self-respecting and developed races when they are taking anything serious in hand. This is partly because it does, as above remarked, represent physical expression, which is not the type to which intellectual people are prone. Developed minds want to convince by argument, primitive people by force. Moreover, rhythm is not progressive. In its direct forms, it is probably much as it was with the cave dwellers. Its limitations are obvious and its simple forms are indicative of a primitive state in those that use it. As a matter of fact, it seems to be the ingrained impulse of composers whose feeling for their art is highly developed to disguise it, as though the frank use of it was commonplace and cheap. What appears to be progress in rhythm is indeed not in rhythm itself, but in that very sophistication. It is like the sophistication of metre in the blank verse of Shakespeare or Milton, or even in the lyric poetry of Shelley and Keats, and later poets, which makes English lyrics so difficult for inefficient and unliterary composers to set. The parallel in poetry and verse is complete. For the jog-trot of those indifferent poets who make an appeal to the undeveloped minds of the herd is poetry of a low order, just as is the rhythmic commonplace of cheap-minded composers. The higher type of composer deals with rhythm as with everything else, he uses the simple basis of a definite rhythm to build upon it something interesting. What would be commonplace and familiar is made worthy of the name of art by its presentation in relation to other rhythms, or in combination with an independent grouping of strong and weak beats, which gives it new significance. Such sophistication of rhythm was very difficult in the times when music was confined to one melodic part but it became easy when choral music developed into contrapuntal treatment of melodic voice parts, and it attained in later days to the highest pitch of interest, when the harmonic style was re-infused with polyphonic methods, and full opportunities were afforded for combining different rhythms at once, and ordinary rhythms in one part could be made quite interesting or amusing through their association with other parts, which are purposely at variance with the essential rhythm. By such procedure, composers succeeded in avoiding the use of common property, and could enjoy the inestimable services of rhythm as a vitalizer and a definer, without condescending from their higher state. The reticence of the higher type of composer is the matter of rhythm, and his tendency to refrain from such undisguised relaxation is curiously confirmed by the history of sacred music. 
It is a very singular fact that in the long period of over five centuries, during which church music was developed from the most primitive conditions, till it manifested such wonderful perfection of spirit and workmanship at the end of the 16th century, composers, guided by instinct rather than conscious reasoning, always endeavoured to suppress or hide the sense of rhythm. As music began to grow from the doubling of plain song at the intervals of fifths and fourths and octaves, which were so convenient to the different calibres of the voices which had to sing it, by filling in the steps between one principal note and another with shorter notes, and so developed primitive counterpoint, composers soon began to aim at giving the effect of independence to human voices by making them move at different times and in different directions, by making use of syncopations, suspensions, dotted notes that overlap one another, and all such procedures as obscured the rhythmic element. And even when, owing to special circumstances, they were driven to make parts move simultaneously, as in later harmonic procedure, they made the chords halt and move again, and even occasionally drop the principal accent, to obviate the sense of rhythmic lilt, as may be observed in some of the hymn tunes of Orlando Gibbons, which have had to be altered and made quite commonplace in modern times to suit the mechanical habits of modern congregations. This curious persistence may be explained by the fact that devotional feeling is not demonstrative. Western people, in really devotional frame of mind, do not gesticulate or fling their arms and legs about to express their feelings, but are bowed down in spiritual ecstasy. The music was the true expression of the spirit, and, till secular music began to react upon religious music after the beginning of the 17th century, the music of the services of the church might fairly be described as anti-rhythmic, and it still remains a fact that whenever rhythm makes its appearance prominently in music, which purports to be devotional, it is a proof of its insincerity. But there are always many things which concur in achieving a big result, and it must be admitted that conjoined with the instinct which avoided rhythm in religious music was the fact that all the early religious music was essentially vocal, and vocal music in its purest simplicity is comparatively unrhythmic. It learnt definite and consistent rhythm from instrumental music, when that came to be cultivated with vigour from the beginning of the 17th century onward. It is true that dance music was sung, and that the balletti of such a delightful composer as Morley have wonderful rhythmic verve, but such compositions represent the time when musical expansion was moving strongly in a secular direction, and instruments were beginning to exert their influence. The greater madrigals of the late 16th and early 17th centuries still illustrate the inherent peculiarity of pure choral music to give ample proofs to the composer's endeavours to disguise the rhythmic element and represent the underlying principle of the grouping of strong and weak beats without adopting obvious rhythmic organisation. Instrumental music, on the other hand, inevitably implies rhythm. In its most primitive phases, it was probably nothing but rhythm, and that rhythm of a perfectly frank and undisguised description. In its early artistic phases, it was generally full of rhythmic life, without obtruding the rhythm as a special means of appeal to the audience, as is the case in modern popular music. The deeply ingrained habits of counterpoint, which still persisted in the 18th century, made even suites of dance tunes so full of texture and detail that the rhythm was rather the basis of the definition of pulses than a factor in the effect. 
If the story of modern music were followed up with special reference to rhythm, it would be found that the aim of all composers who took their art seriously has been to avoid the commonplaces and to sophisticate rhythm in such a way as to make it serve as an additional source of expression, instead of a mere mechanical incitement to movement. The increase of orchestral instruments offered ample opportunities to sophisticate rhythms in a manner analogous to the charming effects of early choral music, in which syncopation and cross-rhythms add a genuine interest to the fundamental rhythm, and seem to play with the hearers by making them feel that one rhythm is superimposed on another. Even in actual modern dance tunes of the best kind, the impulse to add something independent to the fundamental rhythm is found in such devices as tying over the last note of a group of three in a valse to the strong beat of the succeeding rhythmic group while the essential rhythm is maintained by the bass or other instruments of the accompaniment and composers have even successfully devised such attractive ingenuities as the effect of three long beats being superimposed on two groups of the three lesser beats of the established rhythm the well-known combination in mozart's don giovanni of a minuet and a valse each in triple time and a country dance in 4-4 time, is one of the most ingenious illustrations of such combined rhythms. The essential basis of all such devices is the sophistication of the obvious, which is the natural impulse of every true composer. Such sophistication is, however, ultimately dependent on the development of harmony into its latest polyphonic phases, which represent the furthest progress of intellectual perception in the races which make use of it. The use of harmonies, systematized on the basis of tonalities, is the highest development in respect of expression that has been attained in art, and it has become a means of widening the possibilities of organization, which seems to be unlimited. It is said of a famous English philosopher, whose range of intellectual power was abnormal, that he wept because he thought that the range of melodic variety was exhaustible. He was possibly one of many whose musical sense is not sufficiently developed to understand progressions of harmony, for if he had known that every note of every melody is capable of being accompanied by an immense number of different harmonies, probably several dozens apiece, and that each different harmony is capable of altering altogether the expressive character of the melodic note in relation to other notes of the melody, and that the changes in expression not only apply to notes which are contiguous, but to notes that are several steps removed, he need not have been distressed at the limitations of the musical scale as developed by European peoples. But this does not by any means exhaust the possibilities of expressive effect, because the same harmony will have a different effect if it is in close order or in open order, if it is in close order in a high part of the scale or a low part of the scale, and the melodic significance is also variable with the rhythmic treatment to which it is subjected. The full force of harmonies to minister to expression was dependent on the systematization of chords on a tonal basis. This had been in the air for a long time before composers definitely grappled with the problem, as may be observed in the splendid use J.S. Bach made of the expressive resources of harmony. But it was the classical masters of the sonata period who dealt with the matter effectually. They based their scheme of organization on the recognition of a complete classification of the harmonic contents of any key, which implied a recognition of the actual degrees of importance and of the functions of each individual chord. 
This scheme also required, as its most essential guarantee, a very strict recognition and observance of each key that became a factor in the form, and also the apprehension of chords as chords. But when the true polyphonic spirit invaded the sacred precincts of the sonata type, and means were supplied to slip from diatonic chord to chromatic chord, and even for a composer to lead the pleasingly bewildered hearer into some unimaginable remote key and back, it began to dawn on people that the achievement of even such an admirable principle of organisation as the sonata form had not landed musicians in their final haven, but that in reality the sonata period was merely one of transition, a kind of interim, like that of the aria form in opera, when men forbore for a time to address themselves to expression and projected their minds to the solution of the essential problems of organisation. The wonderful success which the sonata composers achieved in their devoted self-denial led to the unfortunate misconception that musical art was a thing which stood by itself and was self-sufficient and had no reference in its high manifestations to anything outside itself. Two things corrected this strange aberration. One was that a race of composers sprang up who filled up the easily managed forms of the sonata type with correct and orthodox passages and deluged the world with utterly barren, empty, artificial and intolerably conventional rigmarole. This indeed the world could not put up with, and it turned with not unnatural eagerness to welcome the party who advocated programme music. These aspiring people were quite on the right tack, but the resources of art were not as yet built up sufficiently for their purposes, and therefore a great part of their trivial and conventional imitations of scenes and impressions merely made them ridiculous. The necessary revolution came out of the heart of the old regime. The great masters of the sonata types of art had always been impelled to infuse their works of the sonata order with human meaning and to suggest a condition of feeling, mournful, cheerful, merry, mischievous, and the like and Beethoven, the greatest of them all by far, after showing frequent signs of breaking away even as early as the slow movement of his sonata in D, opus 10, number 3, finally in his latest sonatas, quartets, and symphonies, produced some of the most wonderful human documents ever achieved by man, in which he expressed the workings of his own innermost feelings, the portrayal of his aspirations, his perplexities in face of the problems of life, his deep cogitations and moods, and his hopes for the destiny of humanity. Here, indeed, he had found the true sphere of musical expression. It was the expression of his innermost being, and his music rose to such unparalleled heights because he dealt with his own self, which he was bound to know better than most people know themselves because he was so shut off from the world by his deafness. And it may be added that the music is so profoundly interesting also, because he was personally such an extraordinary and intensely interesting character. Beethoven occupied the unique position of consummating the sonata type and giving the impulse to the artistic development which re-established the full vigour of human expression and feeling. He re-established the right of ideas to be expressed by music and indicated the manner in which it was to be done. His ardent nature rebelled against conventions. He sought to eliminate all dead and inert matter, to get rid of the formal types of accompaniment which were everybody's property, and to make everything subserve to the expression of the idea. It was probably this which impelled him in his later works to revert to the fugue, that is, 
to the real fugue of the type of Johann Sebastian Bach, and not to the bastard form in which attempts were made to amalgamate it with the harmonic scheme of sonata form, which caused the introduction of the conventional passages of that form which were totally alien to the real fugue form. In the genuine fugue form, as illustrated by him and Bach, all the texture of the work is alive, and there are no conventional formulas of accompaniment, and Beethoven's point of view enabled him to go right back, as it were, beyond the historical episode of the sonata, and bring the true fugue again to life, and use it as a most concentrated means of expression. There is a further and very striking aspect of the question, which is that Beethoven, in bringing the fugue form into the field again, anticipated and gave impulse to the revival of the polyphonic methods, which is such a conspicuous feature of the most recent development in art, and yet further, his use of the fugue form illustrated that gravitation of artistic development which was to find such splendid accomplishment in the later music dramas of Wagner, in which the polyphonic treatment and the use of light motif form a gigantic expansion of the essential principles of the supremely elastic form of the fugue. But even these significant facts do not exhaust the aspects in which Beethoven anticipated later artistic developments. It is a very strange fact that after his deafness was quite established, his sense of tone colour continued to expand. Even in comparatively early works, he had shown gravitation toward romantically characteristic effects of instrumentation, as, for instance, in the familiar and supremely wonderful colour scheme of the Scherzo of the C minor symphony. But after he had quite lost his hearing, his colour sense grew in richness and depth, and variety to a bewildering extent. His mind seemed to be specially occupied with finding tone colours which intensified the expression in quite a new way, as for instance in the huge slow movement of the sonata in B-flat, opus 106, in the last movement of the sonata in C minor, opus 111, and in the slow movement of the choral symphony. Prior to his time, there had been a great deal of inert matter in orchestral scoring. The functions of wind instruments were indeed defined, insofar as they were used either as actual solo instruments or more often to supply a pleasant continuity of tone in agreeable colours, while the strings did most of the actual talking. But the standard of execution of the players, as well as the technique of orchestration, was not advanced enough to bring the wind instruments fairly into the operation on an equality with the strings, and they were made to play what was definitely serviceable to the scheme, but had in itself no musical definition and purpose. The greater part of the advance that has since taken place in orchestration consists in making every member of the orchestra contribute to the complex of polyphony by playing actual and apt musical passages. It implied the growth of texture toward vitality in every part of the artistic scheme, and a development of organisation of the very subtlest description. For it must be kept in mind that the employment of instruments of diverse tone colour in the modern manner does not imply their constant employment, but their apt employment only, which is so contrived by the genius of composers who can really think in orchestras that the tone qualities affect the sensibilities of the hearers to the utmost by their relations to one another. Even the feeblest intelligence would be capable of discerning the fact that great effects of colour are made through juxtaposition. 
a very vivid piece of colouring is not vivid because the individual colours are vivid, but because various colours are disposed so as to give particular colours their utmost effect upon the sensibilities. A glowing red does not glow of itself, but because the sensibilities that have been so affected by other colours that they have become highly susceptible to red. Groups of nerves are affected in various ways by tone colours, and the secret of art is so to use the various tone colours that each shall minister in full measure to the effect of the others. And the secret of expression in art, in this particular department, is that the composer, who has that very highly organised faculty of perception of relations of colours, uses just those relations in their various degrees which intensify the susceptibility of the human auditor to the quality of the ideas he wants to express. In this field, there is a very wide and interesting opportunity for special study, as the average of colour tendencies is a very striking means of gauging the disposition and personality of composers. Thus the stern, almost ascetic, colours of Brahms, varied by touching gleams of tenderness and beauty, express his personality most exactly. Beethoven undoubtedly changed his average of colour as he developed his personality. In his earlier works he was genial and bright, after the manner of the sonata composers, and made use of the cheerful colouring that suited a cultured and prosperous aristocracy. In his middle period he became warmer and more serious. In his latest period he was sometimes grim and fierce, sometimes deep and solemn, but often tender with the depth of longing and the earnestness of his aspiration. But who cannot read the character of a composer through his average colour scheme? The flighty, empty-headed trickster, with his sparkling piccolo and his gas-jet noises on violins, and the bombastic vulgarian posing as a man of great feeling with his roars of blatant brass, the oversensitized hedonist with his delicate subtleties, mainly in transparent pearl greys, and so on. We are almost inclined to forget that it is all, or nearly all, a matter of relations. It is only not a matter of relations when the music is false. When the composer does try to make his effects by violence and what he supposes to be the intrinsic power of tone quality, nobody is permanently taken in. That the basis of colour effect is relation is a thing man is learning every day in the infinite variety of a gorgeous sunset and in the luxuriant blaze of his own flower beds. Indeed, the principle of relativity in art is nowhere likely to be more readily felt than in the matter of colour. It is more difficult to apprehend in matters of form and organisation. Yet it ought to be easy to perceive that the whole object of organisation is to put things in their right places. It is just as in the colour scheme. The effect of a work of art, as has been said before, does not depend upon intrinsic interest of individual moments, but on the relation of every moment to every other moment. If the relations are false, the impression is marred and the idea fails to carry conviction. But it follows from this that there had to be a sweeping change in the generally accepted views of the universal applicability of the sonata forms. There were no doubt admirable as types of abstract design. They were examples of approximate perfection in musical organisation. 
but when the time came again after the sonata period to make music express ideas, it became evident, with the assistance of Beethoven's insight, that special ideas required types of organisation which were specially adapted to the ideas. Men humbly ventured on compositions which did not represent the august dignity of the sonata order. They tried in small ways to represent their feelings and ideas. They found the sonata forms much too big. The prescriptive rights of so aristocratic an organisation entailing such a lot of formalities, and they had of sheer necessity to find some forms more apt and compact. The unique genius of Chopin led the way. Surrounded by an atmosphere of romanticism, and entirely free, as far as we can see, from the influence of the sonata spirit, his strange and subtle mind sought types of form which were quite independent of tradition. Very often the form seems to grow out of the musical ideas. At any rate, it is easy to feel that form and utterance progressed simultaneously in his processes of inspiration. This attitude toward original methods of organisation is perceptible in a very large range of his compositions, the ballads, the impromptus, the mazurkas, but in the finest and subtlest shape in the best of the preludes. There, indeed, can always be felt the underlying impulse to express some feeling or idea which is not purely and only musical, and also the exact aptness of the form in which it is expressed. Hardly any modern composers have excelled Chopin in this respect. It is his greatest contribution to the evolution of musical art. But even classical composers, composers essentially built up on the great traditions, tacitly admitted the gravitation of art back to its rightful position. Mendelssohn in his Songs Without Words and Symphonies, Schumann in vast numbers of movements of all calibres for pianoforte, and even in movements of symphonies, such as the slow movement of the Rhenish and the whole of the D major. Brahms in his compact and well-considered piano pieces and movements in his chamber music, and later on the host of experimentalising composers in every branch of art, all bent on expressing something that stirs them, and all bent on finding special ways of organising what they have to say. The most conclusive illustrations are naturally in the branch of song as cultivated by modern composers. Here the theories of the few faithful defenders of the old strongholds are obviously void, for it is impossible to imagine anyone being so preposterously idiotic as to try and write a song in sonata form. The scheme of organisation must inevitably, in such a form of art, follow absolutely the meaning of the words and the course of the dramatic development. As a matter of fact, the same connection with words rules the situation as far as regards the artistic organisation in all directions from anthems and church music up to the colossal scores of music dramas. The composer has now not only to provide diction, method, artistic texture, colour, but also new types of form. It may indeed be said that the highest aim of the composer after the discovery of something worth expressing, is to find some new scheme, some new distribution of the architectural elements of his musical work, which will present his ideas in forms which will attract the attention and keep the interest of the highest class of minds.
the situation may be said to round off the story of music's development so far. For the colossal accumulation of resources and means of beautifying and vitalizing ideas serves not only for utterance, but also to widen the scope and variety of schemes of artistic organization. And the individual composer becomes personally responsible in that respect, as well as for the feeling and the artistic details. But the indebtedness of latter-day composers to the devotion of those who went before is not exhausted by these accomplishments. For there are many features of art to which successive generations of composers have contributed in the fashioning and which ought not to be overlooked, though they cannot be dealt with in detail in a summary. One of the subtlest and most interesting is the differentiation of various styles. The instinct which impelled composers in this connection was always to find the most perfect adjustment of resources to environment. In other words, to express what they had to say in the ways which were most convenient and effective for the instruments which had to play it, and most suitable to the audience to which it was to be addressed in the place where it had to be performed. At first, composers' ingenuity was exercised in one style only, that of choral music limited also mainly to sacred music. When that was more or less perfected in the space of some five centuries, instrumental secular style began to emerge, at first leaning on the methods and devices which composers had found out in choral music, and then by degrees, as instrumental music learned to stand alone, making it more completely apt for performance by instruments. Which process has gone on till the present day, and is still going on? Then, soon after instrumental style began to branch off from the parent stem of choral music, operatic style began to be laboriously devised, and is by degrees still being perfected in the sphere of music drama. Then followed the distinct style for various solo instruments, as the style of organ music, the style for various kinds of orchestral music, for chamber music, for domestic music, songs, concert platform music, various types of modern church music, an ever-increasing variety, each style being the most perfect adaptation to the conditions of presentment and the qualities of instruments as time goes on. Another development of great interest is that of thematic material. Such things as subjects were hardly thought of at first in artistic conditions, as choral music was not adapted to clear definition. That quality began to manifest itself when rhythm began to play its part in instrumental music. Then melodious passages, which were clearly recognisable in themselves, began to make their appearance in operatic arias. But they were for a long time defined more by the conventional periods indicated by cadences of various degrees of finality than by their individual character. This peculiarity of defining subjects persisted almost to the end of the sonata period in the latter part of Beethoven's life when he began to divine the possibility of subjects being identifiable for themselves without artificial conventions for marking their boundaries, and gave the impulse to that practice of concentrating interest in short phrases and figures which have intrinsic definition by reason of their characteristic intervals and rhythms, which has become the most universal trait of all later music, gathering force in the Romantic period and being developed further by the latest representative composers, who use colour, chord positions, even modulation, as well as melodic features, as factors in making their thematic nuclei stand out from their context, and serve the purpose of text to their discourses. The said texts, 
serving also to suggest as clearly as possible what the composer has in his mind, which he desires to convey to his audience in the most vivid and permanent forms. It is inevitable that all this huge development of artistic resources, which has taken so many centuries of patient and devoted concentration of faculties, should bewilder the ardent and eager latter-day composer, who is longing to express himself at once. In many cases, his invention and spontaneity seem to be paralysed by the amount there is to learn. On the one hand, it causes academicism in the more conscientious, and on the other, it causes rebellion. All of the isms of contemporary art of all kinds are the result of a kind of indigestion which is the outcome of the superabundance of resources of all kinds. The highest manifestations of art can only be produced by those who have survived the long process of learning to understand the meaning and purpose of artistic procedures and still have some vitality left. But the public is by this time quite incapable of distinguishing between what is built upon genuine foundations and what is pure recklessness. They like recklessness, and the power to recognise the mind which builds so difficult an edifice of individuality on loyalty to his art requires too much education. So many contrive the appearance of originality by the easy process of merely doing what they have been advised not to do. They cry out against the soul-subduing labour of having to learn how to do the things that are worth doing in the best way. So artistic progress becomes mainly the process of learning from making mistakes, which brings it into line with all the ordinary forms of social progress. It becomes a wild hurly-burly of impetuous adventurousness, in which the ardent explorers do not even allow themselves time to find out whether the new country they propose to explore is worth exploring. But without doubt there is a residue of the real quality, when the disposition of the composer is also of fine quality. The new paths now entail the motive of the composer being more identifiable than ever. They betray themselves in spite of themselves. The pedant cannot escape from his pedantry, the conventional-minded from his conventions, the sentimentalist from his sentimentalities, the vain man from his vanities, the sensualist from his cravings, the insolent from his insolence, or the commercial from his advertisements. The general repudiation of standards leaves them all without disguise, and the man who understands music can identify the individual and his type of society and what it is worth through the music he puts forward as representing him. It entails a change in the position of musical art which took place in the painting art centuries earlier and shows what a modern thing music is. Men no longer expect music to be the expression of noble and exalted thoughts only, but accept it as the expression of all kinds of moods, emotions, feelings and aspirations, whether they be little and intimate, satiric and strange, wildly extravagant, genially humorous, pugnacious, pacific, pastoral, even uproariously domestic. It is a new kind of differentiation in which there is inevitably a new kind of waste. But the ideal public, which is infinitely longer than it is broad, will ultimately apply the judgment based on the experience of generations and will sift out the products of the genuinely artistic beings from the follies of the heedless ones. The purists are in despair 
but those whose optimism is invulnerable can look forward in the unshaken belief that art will go on expanding healthily in spite of the confusion of tongues through the inextinguishable passion of true composers to find the most perfect and complete expression of their own personalities c hubert h parry october 1914 end of introduction read by jake militia